Welcome to Small Pleasures, the podcast that discusses great short stories and greatness in the short story form. My name is Livy Michael and I'm a novelist and short story writer from Manchester, England. And this is Sonia Moore, a short story writer and translator from Paris, France. Bonjour. We've come together because of a mutual enthusiasm for the short story, although I think our responses and what we want from a short story vary. And we hope that the differences will provide a fruitful discussion. Today we're discussing John McGregor's short story, The Singing, from his collection, This Isn't the Sort of Thing That Happens to Someone Like You, published by Bloomsbury in 2012 and Fourth Estate in 2017. McGregor has published three short story collections and is a highly acclaimed novelist who's been awarded the International Dublin Literary Award and Costa Book Award, among others. He's Professor of Creative Writing at the University of Nottingham, where he edits the literary journal The Letters Page. This collection of stories set in and around the English Friends explores the extraordinary within the ordinary. Livy, there's much to love in this collection. The startling landscapes, the finely turned phrases, the right humour. Perhaps you'd like to share why we're looking at this particular story and, and what it's about? That's a good question. It's the first time we've discussed such a short, short story that could be classed as flash fiction. And flash fiction is interesting in that it often works by using the minimum words necessary to generate a story in the mind of a reader. So in this case, a woman is lying in bed trying to listen to a distant sound she can only partially hear. And then at one point she gets up. So there's very little plot, but there is a situation, a character and a setting. And in fact, I think most of the story exists outside the text. Should we come back to this idea of setting? Do you want to talk a little bit about how setting comes into play in this story? Well, yes, what's interesting about the collection as a whole is that each story in it is set in a specific place in the Fens. And the singing is set in Thirlby, which is a village in Lincolnshire bordering the Fens. But without being told that, we actually wouldn't know. Yes, that one word Thirlby works incredibly hard, doesn't it? I don't know Thirlby, but as I read on, this word gathered about it all my knowledge of that county Lincolnshire, which I do know a little. So all the other details, the sound of passing vehicles, the tractor in the fields, the light in the distance, took on a particular aspect. Uh, this made me think about the power of literature to transform our reality. There's a place in France called Illiers that Proust recreated in his work under the fictive name of Combray, so powerfully that the town has since renamed itself to fit the fiction, so it's now Illiers Combray. If I ever do visit Thirlby, I'm fairly sure that I will revisit the story in mind and heart. Amazing, I love that. I don't know Thirlby either, but I know a little bit about the geography of the Fens. So you have marshland dissolving slowly into water, big skies where the horizon of earth and sky merge. The borders are often kind of slightly indistinct, I think, as you look in the far distance. And something about this seems suited to McGregor's style, which is always subtle and nuanced, containing space. And there are moments in this story where the language kind of undermines its own specificity with a different kind of specificity. So the singing is vivid, but distanced. She can't make out the words or the tune, isn't quite sure whether it could be called singing. The light seems to tremble. She thinks she can see flames. Every detail that might be specific is undermined. And we gradually realize that we're in an interior landscape and language. 
Yeah, I love that we're first presented with this specific sound, the singing, and then a specific place, Dalby, and then this indeterminate she, which really balloons in the imagination. Yeah, the character isn't named, and I'm becoming interested in how often that happens in the short stories we've covered, in the, the Hadley, the Mort, the Monroe. And naming a character is a powerful thing, since it invariably sets up associations in the mind of the reader to do with age, class, nationality. And not naming is equally powerful, because it kind of leaves the character without social associations. So you have to kind of build those in yourself and it contributes to the fact that as I say most of the story exists outside the actual written text. Yeah I love that idea. I was thinking just before we spoke about whether this relates at all to um, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance by, <laughs> by Robert M. Persig. Uh, so he puts forward this idea of quality as an event so there's this um, dynamic quality interdependence. Ah oh, yeah so all the associations in a story are interdependent on one another, and that's how we build up a picture. I think it's more that the, um, the quality isn't a thing in itself. It's, it's something that happens when a subject becomes aware of an object. And in that moment, they also become more aware of themselves. That's a sort of interdependent relationship. So I suppose it's the, the idea that we're bringing a lot to a text, but then the text is giving us something back as well. Yes, that's a very interesting point with relevance to this story, because it's quite possible that the associations I've built up in my mind are very different from the ones you have. And we have a different picture of what this character might look like and the room that they're in. Mm. And I love the way that spills beyond the text as well, because as I was saying earlier, Thalby will never be the same now. For me, it will always be this story to a certain extent, which is a bit strange. Which is interesting because in other ways you could hardly say it was about Thilby at all. The woman could True. be in it anywhere because of this careful removal of all the social associations with her not named, no age given. We don't know precisely what has happened. Yeah. True. But I think you were saying the story does offer clues, doesn't it? It does, yeah. It asks us to work very hard. I think it's generous and demanding at the same time. Each line offers something, some clue as to what's going on. And then this has to be worked with by the reader. And I don't think we can say worked out in that nothing can be definitely ascertained, which is also probably what makes this story so powerful. If you think of story as being the opening up of possibility, then I think this text keeps doing that. Actually, I was thinking about a conversation I had with a friend who does a lot of theatre, and she was talking about how in improvisation she never uses the word no, because yes opens up the scene and no collapses the scene. So even if she's trying to create conflict or, I don't know, something, I don't know, a sense of horror or something like that, she doesn't use the word no. She tries to open it up in a different way. I found quite interesting in terms of writing. I thought I might steal that somehow and integrate that into a short story writing. <laughs> is very interesting and you know, I think of a poem as something that continuously opens you know it opens mm. more from associations I think this you're right about this short story it does that I mean I, when you say the opening of possibility that sounds quite positive to me but I didn't get a kind of positive atmosphere or feeling from the story I got a combination of uh, uncertainty about the boundaries of what can be known what the character can know and what we can 
know, also a quite powerful sense of loss. And I was thinking, you know, the more I thought about it, I thought, where are the boundaries of this short story? Mm. Did you did you feel any boundaries as far as you could see? Well, there is a kind of boundary in the sense of she's looking out to the far horizon, but we don't know exactly what the distance is at which she sees the light trembling, do we? I think we have to engage quite strongly with this unknown character to get a sense of the space that she's in, which is very confined, but in another sense, kind of opens out into the window, into the thing that she's hearing that may or may not be a tune, and we don't know how distant that is. So maybe the boundary is her, her solitude, There is no one with her in the story to either confirm or deny what she can see or hear. Mm. And yet at the same time, we're with her and sometimes very intimately. Yes. um, We seem to share skin and lung space with her at one point and and her head space. There's some free and direct there uh, when she says she expected days like this. And we do get emotional insights, as you say. I felt a kind of emotional boundary also, perhaps relating to the plot and what's not revealed because that keeps us at a certain distance. Yes. And yeah, I, I felt also that there was a mirroring with the, the protagonist looking out of the window at that great stretch of land and the sound smearing and the visual features of being unsure. Yes. So there's a play on space and distance there. We, we can't get close to her. So that kind of underlines the sense of isolation, doesn't it? And it goes with the kind of sensory shift, because I think while you're in the hearing with her trying to identify what she can hear, that is more intimate than when she's standing at the window, in a way. At that point, you get a greater sense of distance. There's a definite shift in the story at that point, yeah. I do admire the way the actual emotional trajectory and the experience isn't directly described, apart from the skillful use of space and focus. It's interesting to me also that the story looks a little like a poem with the paragraphs as stanzas. It's told in four paragraphs of roughly decreasing lengths. There's a definite feeling of funneling. I didn't get decreasing length exactly, more sort of quickening beat of long, short, long, short. And the story is about 390 words long and it's presented quite blockily. Very short pieces often work white space really hard and this short piece seemed to be doing something different in that it remains very contained. McGregor's story would have had a very different feel if he'd used spaces or asterisks to put more air in there. It's almost as if the text formatting mirrored the one room setting. Mm. Uh, And I'm thinking also of how a stanza means room that might be relevant to this story also. Okay, I hadn't thought of that, but I think you're absolutely right there. Um, There is something about the way the text is formatted that does mirror the actual content of the story, I think. And, I mean, you you can find that in poetry as well, can't you? The use of the stanza, the shaping of the stanza to mirror the content. And I think sometimes the connection between flash fiction in particular and poetry has to do with the use of imagery. And you have to follow the imagery quite closely to pick up on the theme. And then the imagery at the end of the first paragraph, which is the longest paragraph, seems to me to be that of death. Mm, That came through also for me, yes. And I I thought a little bit about how that came through, because um, there's a reference to balls of cold dough 
Yes. which immediately raised for me some sort of rituals of, of wake or death. And I wondered how, because I've never heard of that being used. So I think there might be some drawing on cultural references, almost um, subconscious cultural references. Yes, that's interesting. It does mention coins as well, though. The association of the two, perhaps. Yeah. And the figures are stiff. So this yeah. character is almost on, you know, living a half-life not dead, but not fully alive. But yes, you're right, I think, about that shared cultural currency. You know, the writer draws on that and we automatically pick up on those associations, not even consciously all the time, I think. Yeah, and again, it, it can feed back, I think, because now I will always think of that as, I don't know, I'll think of that in relation to the rituals of death, balls of cold dough. That's now got that... <laughs> <laughs> that extra weight on it for me. There is something, I think it's that balls of cold dough are a little like clay. So that's the association for me. I was thinking of clay and then the pennies on the eyes. Yeah. Yeah. So you have this kind of layering associations, but also in that first paragraph, I was really pulled up in the middle of it by this short sentence, this was what happened, because I almost felt that that should start a new paragraph, but it doesn't. It lay very still. It repeats the beginning again true yeah. true he doesn't let us out of that confined space right he keeps us there like like the protagonist listening yes and i think in this short story for instance there is no speech no use of quotation marks but in other short stories in the collection so the first one which is Horncastle, that's another very short short story and two characters speak to one another but there is no use of quotation marks no use of a question mark at the end of a question and nowhere in the book I think an exclamation mark and I think this makes the surface of his work very quiet so you have to, it, it doesn't allow the punctuation to do the work of the emotional shifts for you. You know, you have to engage with it to realise that um, there are these shifts of emotion going on beneath the surface. Yeah, I love this punctuation level attention. I think that's really important. I was given a genius exercise by a flash non-fiction writer called Annie Leontes, uh, the Disquiet International Programme, where we took all the words away from our work so all that's left is punctuation and you get to see the music of your silences it's incredibly revealing to to work out I think not just your own style as a writer but the style of others it's an exercise I use in translation as well okay. like it's like looking at something in negative it's, it's very revealing in terms of style what do you have between the punctuation then nothing nothing white space so you okay you've got a comma then you've got a space and then a full stop is that how it works you might have yeah it's it's as if you had the page of text in front of you but you just taken out all the words so you, you might just have a gap comma gap comma gap comma period very interesting gap comma, gap comma dash dash and you can see you can break down a little bit like music this way the sentence for writer i'm working with at the moment you can see that she has sort of run on run on sentences comma 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 period comma 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 period comma 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 period 
So you, you get to see the music of the language a little bit differently. It's so interesting because I do feel that there is a kind of musicality underlying this short story. And presumably if you did that exercise with John McGregor, it would be quite a distinctive pattern. It may be that you could pick out differences in different writers, kind of composition, the rhythms underlying the work by doing that exercise just as you can without actually looking at the words that is so interesting. So I feel that that use of or non-use of punctuation erodes the differences between speech and narration and between question and statement or quiet statement and exclamation. All of those things are gone. And in this story, I felt that there is this balance between what is happening and what isn't. This is what happened. She lay very still. Well, so nothing is happening, or is it? Well, you know? uh, yes, this is the thing, because at the same time, <laughs> it really is happening, isn't it? Something is happening. I, I had the great good fortune to listen to Chris Power and John McGregor talking about Alice Munro for The Word Factory with the illustrious Elsa Cox, luckily, the audience. John McGregor said, if I remember rightly, that he asks his pupils to break down stories into what happens, just what happens. And I, I've seen, an, I think, an article by Curtis Sittenfeld recommending the same thing, just what happens, then what happens, then what happens, then what happens. So I suppose in this story, it would be limited to very, micro micro movements micro incidents yes that's a good word for it because otherwise you would just have she lay in bed and then she got up so <laughs> and this is the interesting thing because she doesn't it doesn't I don't think it says in the story that she gets up we it's both inferred that but it it says it cuts to her by the window yes oh okay and so it's uh that's us bringing to the text the action. It does say she stood at the window. Yes, but I don't think it says she gets up. We just understand that she's got up. We see her, there's yes. a scene in the bed and then the scene by the window. Yes, so the action occurs in a kind of ellipsis. Yes, we, we've been completing the text. Yes, that's very interesting. And another feature of the style in this short story is you have several very short sentences and a list a list of what's happening and yet still it does contain quite a lot of movement I think I mean how would you describe the movement we've said already that it begins with hearing and moves into vision and it begins with somebody lying down and ends with them standing we assume it's quite sensuous in a way I felt there was what a terrible sense of weight and constriction and a lot of that comes from movement um sort of constriction release in in mind body I think the singing also has a transformative quality because it seems to keep taking off and evading. It becomes vaporous or liquid. Yes. Um, and in my imagination, it changed over and over again, becoming either an emotion or a memory of lost love or even angels singing. And I really felt that reaching for the singing as well, not, not so much in physical movement, more in, in emotional. And I love that it's unattainable. There's the memory of singing that keeps the woman still and straining. So she's reaching for something that's already and maybe forever out of reach. And there's something very beautiful about that, I think the way humans keep reaching out to something beyond themselves. Yes, and for me also, it's the uncertainty what she's listening to. It might be this, it might be something else, and then the uncertainty of what she sees. And even the very subtle detail of the cars, the roar of the cars is intermittent, isn't it? 
The cars on the road came one at a time with great spaces between them moving too quickly. And the sounds they left behind were like sneers. So that's a point at which vision and hearing are linked. They become one. But also just that detail gives me a sense of space because if you're in the middle of a city with cars packed on the road, you don't hear the sounds one at a time. You hear them all at once. They're not moving too quickly. They're often stuck in very slow moving traffic. So this is somewhere really out in the middle of nowhere that is the impression that you get just from these oblique Mm. clues that just don't give you the setting at all other than giving you that one name Thirlby but I like your point about things being unattainable and this the body something quite solid or rigid about the body we do keep returning don't we we keep returning to that Um, there's the tight chest the rigid hands and this ever increasing sense of grief or desolation and there's there's promise and yearning but ultimately nothing met or satisfied so I guess everything remains flat in that respect we remain tethered I think tethered is a good word and you certainly get the sense of confinement and restriction even though at the same time there is the sense of distance and space and the horizon it's very skillfully done those two sets of associations in combination also there are different types of tense in this story past continuous past perfect past simple and the present moment layering of different experiences of time or perceptions of time which might provide movement but I think mainly in this story you have the sense of a continuous experience that has gone on and will keep on going on so she'd expected days like this to begin with but she hadn't expected them to to continue for as long as they had I was wondering what do you think of the last line it seems to confirm loss right Um, and by the quietness maybe a sense of long-term grief this continuous experience that you refer to she's lost the singing and all the transcendence and joy that this implies there's just meaningless labor ahead and aloneness the no one gave me pause because it seems to imply perhaps a lost love but also indicates that she herself is no one apparently her own existence isn't enough to justify the doing of the things she thinks she must do there's such profound sadness there. Partly from the echo of the third to last line where she turns away from the window and back to the room, moving from expansion to isolation. Writers are sometimes told not to end a sentence on a preposition. There's a famous Churchill quote to refute that. But I really love this story as an elegant demonstration of how you absolutely can shuffle around all the building blocks of language to gain different effects. The placing of the now and the four seem very deliberate and the four really rings that note really holds resonate. Yes, I think you're right there. I mean, I did wonder what would happen if he'd left the last sentence out because you would still have that sense of distance, space, solitude and yearning after something. And then I have this odd thought about gender. Would this story work equally well for a male character? And does the last line give a sense of being trapped in the female experience? And then I thought, well, is it specifically female to need someone to do things for? That's a great question. I love the way that you're playing with the text. I often find that with my own work, it's worth chopping off the first paragraph and the last paragraph um and yeah i think the question is a fair one we'd probably read it quite differently if uh, if the gender were changed the interpretation
interpreted differently. The last line would resonate differently. Yeah, I think it would. And that adds to the sense of part of her confinement does seem to me to be in female experience. Here, we don't know exactly what the loss is, but because the story occurs in the bedroom, it did suggest the loss of a partner to me and also something from which there is no recovery, which I think is to do with the skillful sense of tense. You know, she hadn't expected to these days to continue for as long as they had or to come so often and with such weight. In terms of style, this story reminds me of a short story by Margaret Atwood in Murder in the Dark. And this short story is just called Autobiography. It's four paragraphs similarly. All the story is outside the text and it works around a kind of sensory shift, a shift from sight to smell in this case. But I think with John McGregor's work, there's always a very strong sense in his stories and novels of connection to landscape, which reminds me of Thomas Hardy to some extent. Mm. I thought of D.H. Lawrence, something mm. to do with man-work landscapes and a certain grubbiness, along with the beauty of the land. Yes, and I believe Lawrence was influenced by Hardy, and I think it's a sense of the rural rather than the urban context which filters through to John McGregor's work, that organic connection with the land, the terrain and the landscape. Do you think this relates to plot at all? Because it seemed to me that there's no apparent climax just like the endless sky across the flat fields that characterise the setting. The plot is so stripped back that the, the looking out of the window becomes a major plot point. True. I mean, you can almost ask in what sense is it a story? And is the uncertainty or undermining of specificity a way of presenting a deeply eroded sense of self, a subjectivity that's reduced to trying to trace a sensory impression she may or may not be hearing? Oh, great questions. If someone wanted to write a story like this one, how would they set about it? What are the key features of John McGregor's style? So I think one of the key features for me is his subtlety. And in this story, as we say, there is almost no plot, just the creation of a subjective experience that is almost not there. Um, you described it as micro effects or micro events. I think that's a nice way of putting it. There is a movement from very close focus to distance and a powerful sense of isolation because nothing interrupts this movement. There is no interaction. Um, the focus is to some extent on the uncertainty. The light seemed to tremble. She couldn't be sure because perception is a social thing, as is identity. It's something we agree on. Yes, that light seems to be trembling. We both think that. Solitude, loss and uncertainty go together in this powerful blend. So I think you'll put a close focus on sensory impressions and don't give the actual story away at all. Don't give the details of time, place, age, relationship. Make the absence and the gaps speak themselves. And what we have in this story is that it speaks of a powerful sense of loss. Thank you. That's wonderful. There's so much to learn from these appreciations of style. Thank you. And this collection, to repeat the title, this isn't the sort of thing that happens to someone like you, Fourth Estate, is a truly rewarding collection. McGregor is someone to read over and over again and find something to learn each time because a great collection is inexhaustible. So thank you once again for listening to this Small Pleasures podcast and do keep your eyes and ears open for our next. Watch this space. We have many great short stories to cover. Until then, goodbye from me and from Sonia. A très bientôt.